0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to um, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, beginning with verse 14. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 last week we talked about jo, uh, joshua who's going to say Josiah, that's the name of my grandson uh, we were talking about joshua and really when we're talking about joshua it's we're, we're really speaking about the old covenant and how joshua of the old covenant you know the literal man that that uh succeeded moses he was he brought the people into the children uh brought the children of israel into the promised land and yet as we find out, as we read last week, he was unable to give them that rest that God had wanted for the children of Israel. In fact, in verse 8 of chapter 4, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. And yesterday, or last week, we were talking about God's rest. And uh, God's rest in salvation, God's rest in submission. And so Joshua, the old covenant, speaking of the old covenant, unable to bring the children of Israel to that place of rest. Well, we found out last week that Joshua is the Hebrew name. uh, The Greek name is Jesus, Yeshua, Mashiach. And Joshua of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, our Savior, he is able to give us that complete rest. He is able to bring us into that place of God's rest. We also talked about the fact that Moses... And Moses, when you think of him, he represents the law. He was unable to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. And this week, what we're going to be looking at this morning, is the Levitical priesthood. The priests that descended from Aaron, who was Moses' brother, they were unable also to bring the children of Israel to that place of God's complete rest. And yet, as we'll discover today our great high priest Christ Jesus he is able to bring us to that place of complete rest and so this week we're going to be looking at how our great priest our great high priest uh, is better than the levitical priesthood and uh, we'll be looking at that. Actually, it's going to be covered in actually a few different chapters as we go through Hebrews. So this isn't the only time we'll be talking about that. But one of the things that I was doing is I was preparing this week for this message. And, you know, the thing about Hebrews is it is very rich. It's pregnant with theological, uh, very important principles and, and things that are just you know, fundamental to our faith, and so uh, you know, as as I usually do when I'm 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 studying this, the, you know, in preparation for a Sunday, I'm praying, saying, Lord, show me, give me some, give me some uh, application, because you know, I could fill your head with knowledge and information, and that's great. It's good to know how Christ is better than our high, than uh, the Levitical priesthood, but the real issue is, how does it affect me? How does it impact me? in my life in my situation today and so that's been my prayer as i've been preparing this and uh, so when i was doing that i started i started praying and and one of the things that just kept jumping out to me it's it's talking about our great high priest christ jesus and what what just came to me or just reminded the spirit reminded me of is what peter says in first peter 2 9 that you and i we are a royal priesthood and i went hmm that's interesting So if I look at the qualities or the things that our great high priest does, I thought, wonder if maybe that's something that we as priests should emulate because we want to emulate Christ Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. And so this morning, that's what I hope to do as we go through this. We'll be talking about some principles, but I also hope that we can pick up some application, how you and I are to emulate Christ. And so that's what we'll be looking at. That's kind of our focus this morning. So beginning with verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. So, says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, when, when, when the writer here is mentioning Jesus, he's speaking of the man Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, who's also the Son of God, and so in that one verse, we're talking about the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus Christ. The King James version of that verse says that our great high priest has passed into the heavens. And when you look that up in the in the Hebrew, or excuse me in the Greek, Greek, that word passed into is the word traversed. And what that means is he's he's passed through or passed over or passed to. And so what has he passed into? He's passed from the veil, V-A-L-E, not V-A-I-L, the V-A-L-E, or the Valley of Humanity, up to the throne of God. And so now he is up at the throne of God right now, and that's where he's performing the function of the high priest for you and I, as we'll see this morning. And that's why he's able to provide that promise of divine rest. So the writer here of Hebrews so seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us seize on to retrain, retain with strength. You know, you're, you're grabbing on to something, you're hanging on to it. Let us hold on to our confession. And the verb tense of that word is actually let us continue holding, uh, let us keep holding fast, excuse me. To continue to hold even when resistance, even when you're feeling resistance. Now, one thing I'm very thankful for, I'm very thankful that this verse didn't say, let us hold fast our salvation. Man, you got to hang on to your salvation because, man, if you let go, there you go, you're not saved anymore. Praise the Lord, that verse doesn't say that, amen? <laughs> let us hold fast our confession. Well, what is our confession then? Our confession is your and my common faith in Christ Jesus. Thayer says this, it's whom we profess to be ours. You think about that. These Hebrew believers, they were under a lot of pressure. It was difficult for them to remain following Christ Jesus in their culture because the temple was still standing, we believe, while, when Hebrews was written. So there was the continual sacrifices and the festivals and everything that happened year, throughout the year for the Jewish people. Not only that, but Judaism, the faith of Judaism, the Old Testament, the covenant, that was, that was central not only to the religious life of the people, but that was the social life. That was the economic life. Everything was revolved around Judaism. It's kind of like if you would go to a Muslim country Muslim country, it's not just their religion, it's everything. It's their society, it's their politics, it's, it's everything is centered around uh, Islam. But here in the United States, in the West, I guess I'd speak, maybe not just the United States, Christianity, it's not central to life. It is for me and probably for you, I'm sure. But in our society, I mean, Christianity, Christians have been getting continually marginalized you know, they don't want to hear about Christ in society. You can work a job, and you can either be a Christian or not be a Christian, and it shouldn't, and it usually doesn't affect your job, right? It doesn't affect your work. They're not going to say, well, you're a Christian. We can't hire you. It's getting to that point probably in some situations. But right now, we don't have that. It's not central to our society, and it's becoming less and less central to our society. So for us, it's maybe it's a little harder to grasp because you can you can almost compartmentalize your Christianity, right? I go to church on Sundays, I'm a Christian, and the rest of the week I just live like everybody else. Nobody has to know anything. You can do that. It's not a, I don't recommend it, but you can do that. But for these Hebrew believers, man, if they get kicked out of the synagogue, it's, it's a big deal. If You know, their family, everything is just Judaism. And so can you imagine being a newborn believer in Christ Jesus And, you know, your family's going to do all the things that they do, you know, as part as Judaism. And you're like, well, you know, Jesus Christ has fulfilled that, that pressure that they would have felt. So this is why, again, we've talked about that before, but that's why this letter was written to the Hebrews. And so they're to hold on to their faith in Christ. Don't let go of it, is what the writer is saying. And for you and I, we are to hold on to our faith in Christ, cling to Christ Jesus. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, when you read that, something I just want you to understand, our Savior Christ Jesus, as a man, was tempted harder than you and I will ever be. And you might say, well, wow, I, I, I don't know, man. I've gone through some really tough trials and temptations and stuff. Listen, you and I have a sin nature. So when we're tempted to sin, man, I tell you, it's very easy to go to, to fall into it and to, and to sin because we have that nature inside of us. In fact, more often than we care to, com- to admit, we do cave into temptation. But here's the deal. Once you give into whatever the temptation is, for me, it's eating ice cream. You no, know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but whatever it is, whatever your temptation is, once you give into it, that pressure, it's kind of like relieved in a sense because you've given into to the temptation. You no longer have that driving pressure. You know what usually happens then is now you've got conviction. You've got remorse. You feel guilty. There's shame for whatever you've done. But Jesus Christ didn't have that sin nature. And so he was tempted, and that pressure never let up. Never let up. In fact, that's why in the uh, English, I like the English Standard Version of Hebrews 12, verse four, because I think it just brings it out better in that verse. But it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. None of us have, but Christ Jesus did. And so he was tempted more than you to a, to a greater degree, to, a, to, a, to a, a higher pressure than you and I ever will be. And so as a result of that, when you and I go through difficulties, when we're tempted, man, Christ Jesus understands. He, he knows because he endured greater than you ever will endure. So he understands what you're going through. And you can go to him and, and receive that strength that you need to resist those things. But what's the application for you and I? The King James version of that verse says, for we do not have an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I kind of like that. What, is, what, what does that mean? That means he's not out of touch with you and I. He's not out of touch with us and our weaknesses. And so here's the application. Are we out of touch with others around us? You ever heard that phrase, walk a mile in their shoes? I've heard that before. Walk a mile in someone's shoes. You know, there's two ways to receive that. When I said, hey, walk a mile in someone's shoes, the one response is, man, amen, pastor. I wish people would walk a mile in my shoes and understand what I'm going through. But if that's your your reaction, you're kind of missing it. Because the point is, And what I'm trying to say is the response should be, Lord, give me a heart of understanding for other people. Understand what they're going through. Understand their weaknesses. Lord, show me. I like what Steve Martin was quoted as saying. He says, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you're a mile away, and you've got his shoes. (laughs) I was thinking about it, that's, that's, pretty good. that's some good advice. I like the way, you know, I could think I could imagine if Si Robertson, you know, Uncle Si from Duck Dynasty, if he had said that, it would have been like, hey, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. Hey, that way when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and hey, you'll have his shoes, Jack. <laughs> I like Duck Dynasty, sorry. <laughs> but really, you know, we want people to understand us, right? We want, we want them to know, man, you, you don't understand what I'm going through. We want people to understand us. But how much more should we understand and make that same effort to understand others? Well, Jesus Christ, our high priest, he understands. He's not out of touch with us. And so we need to remind ourselves, are we out of touch with other people? Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The verb tense there, it really means let us keep on coming to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace. And that, uh, in time of need, it, it, it could be translated for well-timed help or just in the nick of time. Listen, the Lord wants mercy you and I to approach him he wants us to approach him even in our weaknesses he wants us to approach him he wants to extend mercy and grace to us and he is always available for us so as I'm thinking about my great high priest and I think I'm a royal priest I'm part of the royal priesthood how do I apply that to me well can people approach me for mercy and grace and the first question is are you approachable can people, can people come to you? Or do you give off this, this air or this personification that, man, you better not, you better have all your ducks in a row if you're going to talk to me. You know, are we approachable? And when people approach us, will they find mercy? You know, a simple definition of mercy, it's not giving people what they deserve. That's, that's what mercy is. It boils down to not giving them what they deserve. If someone approaches you, can you not give them what they deserve? When people approach us, will they find grace? Here's a very simple definition of that. It's giving people what they don't deserve. You and I, we don't deserve salvation, but we've been given salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, too often we cry out for mercy for ourselves, and yet we demand justice from other people. So are we approachable? And when people approach us, will they find mercy and justice? Moving on to chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So now we find the qualification to be a priest. He is to be taken from among men. That means he's, he's peers. You know, Jesus Christ was born. He lived as a man, and he needed to to become a high priest. He's taken from, a man, from among men, and he's appointed by God, and we'll be seeing that as we go for, further into this chapter. He is appointed by God for things pertaining to God. And what did the priest do? He offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. The priest basically was the link between man and God. That's what the priest's role was. The priest existed to open the way for the sinner to come back to God. You know, Job. Going through such a terrible, terrible time in his life. You know, his family, his his kids were his children were killed. He lost all of his possessions. His wife it seems like in scriptures left him. Um, and then he started having, you know, all these physical ailments and all this stuff. And man, he was just crying out for a mediator. In fact, in Job nine, verse thirty three he says, Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. And yet, that's exactly what Christ Jesus is for you and I. He became a man. He is our peer as far as his humanity is concerned. And the purpose was to be a mediator between sinful man and a holy God. I like what 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He fulfills that role for us, and what's the application for you and I? Well, as a royal priesthood, we are peers to the rest of man, to the rest of the world around us, um, and so in that sense, you know, there's really nothing special about you and I. It's not like we're like we're we're better people, we're smarter, we're you know this or that. It's we're not better. There's nothing special about you and I other than we have been appointed by God to serve others on behalf of others and we're to be that link we're to open the way for sinners to come back to god with our life you know what we say what we say hopefully we're not driving people away by what we say by our actions does our does our actions match up with our testimony and by our prayer that's one of the things that you and i as priests we do we pray for one another we intercede for others we're that link between sinful man and a holy God. In that sense, we're not, we're not Jesus Christ, the mediator, of course. Um, but it gives perspective to what the purpose of any ministry and minister is. You're not above anybody else. And ministry is never to fulfill your own need, you know, your own need for whatever, it's, or for, maybe for purpose. I know people that have got into ministry because, man, they want to feel like they've got a purpose, that's not the minute that's not the that's not the purpose for ministry or maybe for power people are hungry for power so I got to get in the role of leadership so I can control people that's not the purpose for ministry and it's certainly not for prestige it's to be instrumental for opening up a way for people to come back to God that's that's a whole purpose doesn't matter what ministry you're talking about it's not look you know I I kind of give the, the worship team a bad time once in a while. I'm like, you know, we're not, we're not up here to become rock stars because, I mean, we're doing a bad job if that's the case. We're here to bring people to a point where they, they don't even see us. They're looking at Christ Jesus. That's the whole purpose behind uh, worship ministry. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. The Levitical priest, he was a man, and therefore he was subject to weakness. The King James Version says he was compassed or compassed with infirmity. The priest himself has weakness, and that, that word compassed with infirmity, it literally means lying around him like a chain. Man, his weakness is everywhere he turned, he's weak. I can identify with that. The Levitical priest was reminded of his own weakness because when he went into that holy, and it was just the high priest, when he would go into the holy, holy, he had to first offer sacrifices for his own sins, and then he could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was to remind him who he was. And part of that, the, 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 the high priest would wear the ephod, which was like a big apron, and it had a breastplate over his heart that had the 12 stones on it, and each stone had a name of one of the tribes of the children of Israel. And then on both shoulders, there was an onyx stone, and it had, on each shoulder, it had six of the names of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as he was going in, man, the, 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 the people were to be on his heart, and he was to carry their burdens on their shoulders, and so that was a reminder to the priest. We think about this, though. Jesus Christ is better than the Levit- Levitical priest because he is without sin. So he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins, and yet he is still compassionate, even though he's better. He is better. He was still compassionate on you and I, and so if Christ who is without sin and yet he has compassion how much should you and I who do have sin who are compassed with infirmities we've got weakness all around us anywhere you look we're weak how much more should we be compassionate to other people and with other people what is compassion the word literally means gentle it's to be moderate in passion one who is not unduly disturbed by the errors, faults, and sins of others, but bears them gently. Vincent says this, The high priest must not be betrayed into irritation at sin and ignorance, neither must he be weakly indulgent. So it doesn't mean that you and I are to indulge people in their sins. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not to mean that we cannot exhort or rebuke someone when it's needed but we're not to become unduly disturbed nor irritated. And for me, I think about that, and you know, I, I'd rather err on the side of compassion, being too compassionate, than not compassionate enough. And, and if you think about it, just think about Jesus. You know, those that were sinners, the, the tax collectors, those that were the, you know, they were like the traitors to the Jewish people, the prostitutes, all those people that were the outcasts of society, they gladly went to Jesus. They didn't go to the priests or the high, the high priests of the Pharisees. They received, they sensed that compassion in Christ Jesus. I think that goes back to being approachable. Jesus was approachable, and so the question for us is: Are we approachable, and do we have compassion on those who they blow it? They sin. Sometimes they're doing it ignorantly, sometimes not ignorantly. Do we get all riled up and worked up about it? Or are we compassionate? Paul wrote this in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. That's how we are to deal with the sins of one another. So do we have compassion on others when they sin and when they fail? Verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he was called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll be seeing that verse a few times uh, in subsequent studies. These two verses that are quoted, they're used to emphasize that the Father appointed the Son, and that's as far as I'll go with with each one of those, to be our mediator. Again, we'll we'll be dealing dealing with that in greater, you know, deeper as we go through, especially like chapter 7, for example. But no man takes this honor to himself. He's speaking about the high priesthood. He's called by God. Now, in the Bible, there are some examples of people that tried to take on that role of the high priest, and it didn't work out too good for them. Remember when we were in the book of Numbers, Korah and his people that followed him, they wanted to, they're like, like, they're like Aaron, what makes you any better than anybody else? And they wanted to offer the sacrifices And he and his followers, they were Levites, which is the Levitical priesthood. They were of the priesthood family, but they had other roles to do. They were not the high priest. The high priest only was Aaron and his sons and his descendants. And so what happened to them? The earth swallowed them up. Later on in the Bible, King Saul, he tried to offer the burnt offering in place of Samuel, the priest. And it didn't turn out too good for him either. God ended up rejecting him from being king over Israel. And then even yet later on, King Uzziah tried to burn incense on the altar of incense in the holy place. And he ended up becoming a leper to the day of his death. Only the high priest whom God called could perform the function of the high priest. And then, you know, there's two errors that kind of people fall into regarding that. Some people think that they don't need Jesus Christ, their high priest. I can just approach God based on my own righteousness. Uh, that's what those guys tried to do. It didn't work out too good. We have to go through Jesus Christ our high priest. That's one error. Another error is that people sometimes look to other men or man to function as a high priest. And I think of those that maybe they worship the pope. You know, it's like the pope can do, he's, he's our mediator. No, he's not. He's a man. There's only one mediator between man and God, and that's Christ Jesus, our Savior. You know, it's interesting. Christ Jesus is, was prophet, or is prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all those roles. On earth, he was really fulfilling the role of a prophet because he was revealing God to man. That's, that, that's what he was doing in his earthly ministry. In heaven, now he's fulfilling the role of priest. He's mediating between man and God. And, of course, when he returns... He'll be the king of kings and lord of lords. So he fills all those roles. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's kind of brings up some questions. Did Christ Jesus have to learn to be obedient? It's like, was he disobedient and he had to learn to be obedient? Was he imperfect prior to his suffering? Because you read that and go, man, what do you mean he was made perfect? The answer is no. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man without sin the Bible tells us he didn't learn or have to learn how to be obedient but as God became a man he learned what the human or he experienced obedience from the human from the aspect of humanity that's that's really what it's saying It completed his understanding so that he could identify with you and I that much better because he was a man and he learned obedience. So he didn't learn how to be obedient. He was perfect, but he experienced obedience out of his humanity. And he was perfected, and that word really means made complete, by experiencing human obedience and human suffering. And that's why he can fully identify with you and I as our high priest. That was God's purpose. So what's the application for you and I? I look at verse seven and I think about that. Let me reread verse seven. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And I think what the writer is speaking about is that time at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Christ Jesus was a man of prayer. You read that throughout the scriptures. He would go off and pray early in the morning. He's always praying before he did anything. But I think this is specifically speaking to to what's recorded in the Gospels when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, praying. Praying with supplications, with vehement cries and tears. Now, the writer doesn't really tell us a whole, go into a whole lot of details about what that, 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 that experience was. But we do find that from the Gospels. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What was he in agony over? Was it his fear of death and suffering? I don't think so. I mean he was a man so I can't you know I don't think that's what it was What I think it was was that weight of sin who knew he who knew no sin the sin your and my sin was being placed on him and the weight of that the weight of mankind's sin humanity's sin just just crushing him In fact Gethsemane it's it's the place the olive presses it's what that name means basically And he was being squeezed and pressed. He had that weight of sin bearing down on him. I think it was also the break in fellowship that he would experience. Because if you think about it, the Father and the Son from eternity past up until that point had always been in perfect fellowship with one another. And now to think that at one point on the cross, that fellowship was going to be broken, the weight of that. I think that was one of the aspects of it. And then being forsaken of the father's being forsaken so that you and I wouldn't ever be forsaken. I think that's what he was in agony over. It says that the father was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. Did the Lord answer his prayer? Now, some people say yes, and they say why is because he was really praying that the Lord would save him from out of death. And if that's true, then yes, he was saved from out of death because he rose again from the dead. So in that sense, yeah, maybe the Lord did answer his prayer. That's someone's opinion. It's not necessarily my opinion. Because I look at Matthew 26, verse 39... It says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, our redemption, it wasn't possible any other way, by any other means. That phrase that some people say, well, all road, you know, there's many roads that lead to God. It's not true. fact, can you think about it? Just think about that for a moment. The father sending his son to become a man, to live like you and I live, to die on the cross for sins that he never committed, to be beaten and battered and the flesh torn off his skin and, and, and crucified that horrific execution that he did. Can you imagine the father saying, well, son, I want you to do this, but you know, if people want to believe in Buddha, you know, they can follow some good teachings and they can get to me that way too. I mean, that's just absurd when you think about it. How could a loving father have his son die on that cross if there was any other way? The reality, there is no other way. And yet the father was able to save, or to save him And scripture says the father did hear him. But I think the answer was no, my son. Luke 22, it says, Father, he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I think there's an important thing that we can learn from this. And that's about prayer. Is prayer like a list of chores that you want God to do for you? I remember one time we had a young couple staying with us for a while and we would have a regular time of prayer. And I, remember, I just remember one time we were all gathered together to pray and, and, and the wife started praying and it sounded like she was basically telling the Lord, okay, I want you to do this chore and this chore and this chore and this chore and when you're done with that, you can do this and that. And it's, it, it was like he was, she was giving him a laundry list. It just, I remember that just struck me uh, the way she was praying. Now. I want to say this. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we are to bring our requests. Lord, can you do this? Will you do that? You know, we are to do that. But if that's all your prayers are, it's just, uh, you know, God's your butler, basically. What happens when He says no? Well, some of you will say, well, that's fine. You you just don't ask. You name it and you claim it. Just name it and claim it by faith. God has to do it then. Man, I tell you, I don't see that here. I certainly don't see that in Christ's prayer at Gethsemane. He's naming and claiming his deliverance from crucifixion. No, don't see that. What do we see here? We see Christ Jesus is making a request to the Father We're told that the father listened and heard. And the implication is the answer is no. And based on that last verse I read to you, let me read it again. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ Jesus is at peace submitting with the father's will. Let me read Philippians 4, 6 to you again but I'm going to add the next verse with it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And here's the next verse, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And this is a key thing about prayer. Prayer is not to get God to conform to my will or to your will. Prayer primarily is to get us in line with God's will, to get us our hearts in line with God's heart. That's why Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. See, prayer changes us. It changes, it focuses our minds and our hearts with the heart of God. Now, to be fair, if you read through the Psalms, there are some imprecatory imprecatory Psalms where David is like, and if you don't understand what that means, it's it's where David says, Lord, bust their teeth out of their mouth. <laughs> Break their teeth, Lord. You know, kick them in the kick them in the shins. <laughs> you know, it's it's those kind of there they are there, but there's few of them. There's not a bunch of them. Praying for your enemies. You know, we're told to pray for our enemies. Why? So that God will bust their teeth out of their mouths. No, what happens is. They may change. They may, you know, you're praying that they may you know, change your attitude. It may happen, but the primary purpose is to change your heart, and God does that. Jesus said this, Luke 6, verse 27 and 28 to 28. But I say to you who, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And then later on in that same chapter, verse 35 and 36, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. He wants to change your and my heart. And it happens through prayer. And someone might say, well, you know, why do we bring our requests to God? Because the Bible says he already knows what our needs are. And, you know, he already knows what he's going to do. So why do we even pray? Why do we even bring our requests to him? Well, hopefully, hopefully maybe now you kind of picked up on the answer to that. Prayer is vital for everything because it's how your and my heart gets in line with God's heart. And you know what the icing on the cake is? Sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes w- God will change. He will act on behalf of the prayer. But if the answer is no, I can be at peace with that. Why? Because God is love. The Bible tells God is love. So, so he's not going to do anything unloving to me or for me. He's, he loves me. So, so there's that basis. I, I know God loves me. Man, the answer is no, but you know what? He loves me. He's not out to get me. He doesn't hate me. He's not angry with me. He loves me. And God's all-knowing. You know, some of the things we pray for, I, I think back to some of the things I've prayed for, and I'm like, Lord, thank you you didn't answer that prayer because you knew what, it would, what the end result would be. And so God's all-knowing. So, you know, I may be praying, and maybe I, maybe I, I want something, but God has a better plan, or he knows that that's really not the best thing for you. So God's loving, he's all-knowing, and God is wise. And so when I bring my prayers to him, I'm gonna trust him with the answer either way. That's what he wants us to do. And so this last application, I think, is just learning about prayer and seeing how our great high priest, he, he, he was at peace with whatever the answer was. He knew what the answer was. He, there was no other way for him or for salvation. I'm so thankful that he endured the cross, because otherwise you and I wouldn't even be here this morning. We're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up uh, the rest of Chapter 5 and and go into Chapter 6 next week. So I encourage you, maybe this week, read ahead and do a little praying and studying yourself, and you'll just get that much more out of the study next week. Um, Why don't I have the worship team coming up here? while they're getting ready I just you know I know everybody has a story here I think sometimes we all want someone to walk in our shoes to understand what our life was like and maybe they'd have a better understanding of who we are where we're at or or anything like that and and you know I, I really pray this morning that we would take these applications to heart, that we would want to understand where other people are coming from, that we would be compassionate, don't get all riled up over people's failures. People fail. We're humans, we fail, not to get so worked up about it, but to pray for people. And are we approachable? Can someone come to us? When they do, do we bite their heads off? Or do they receive mercy? You know, what they what they don't deserve. Or what they they, they don't get what they do deserve. And do they find grace? They get what they don't deserve. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord God, as I as we looked at our great high priest Jesus Christ, and how he was compassionate, how he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's not out of touch with us. He can fully identify. He can identify with what we're going through better than we can because he endured so much more as a man. Lord God, I thank you that we have such a great high priest. And there is only one great high priest and that's Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But Lord God, you've called us a royal priesthood And so, Lord, these are qualities that, Lord, I believe your spirit wants us to emulate. You want us to be like Christ in these ways. And so, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would make us more compassionate towards others. Lord, that you would make us more approachable. Lord, that we would be like you, where sinners and tax collectors, the IRS, (laughs) whoever they are, Lord, that, that... They feel comfortable coming to us, not that we're gonna just turn a blind's eye to sin, but Lord, that they're gonna receive that compassion and that grace and that mercy, the way you did to anybody that approached you. And so Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. And Lord, for those that are praying, maybe they're praying for something specific and they've been praying for many years and they're growing discouraged because they have not seen you do what they've been praying for. Lord, I thank you that your word teaches that you do hear our prayers. It's not like it's, you're not aware of them. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart to trust your answer, whatever it is, whether it's yes or no, or maybe it's not yet. Lord, that we, would, we could just trust and rest in that because you are a loving God. You are all knowing, Lord, you know the end from the beginning, and you're wise. And so Lord, may we grow through prayer. And so we thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you for each and every person here, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand up and let's sing this last song. You know this last song is, it's called It Might Be Today, and of course it's speaking about the return of Christ Jesus. And, uh, you know, all the things that you and I are called to endure in this life, you know, there's coming a time when all this stuff is going to be gone and we're going to see Christ Jesus face to face. Our faith will no we won't even need faith because we'll see him with our own eyes. I can't wait for that day. But in the meantime, man, may God make us compassionate and, and, and give us his heart. May we, may we serve out the rest of our days like Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen.